gospel feast. Let every soul be Jesus' guest. Need not be one, be left behind. For God hath made all humankind. Sent by my Lord on you who I call. The invitation is to all. Come all the world, come sinner thou. For all things in Christ already in a press, ye restless wanderers after rest, ye poor and maimed and halt and blind, in Christ a hearty welcome find. My message as from God receive, ye all may come to Christ and live, oh let his love your hearts constrain, nor suffer him to die in This is the time, no more delay. This is the Lord's accepted day. Come thou this moment at his call, and live for him who died for all. Grace and peace, and welcome to Cokesbury United Methodist Church here in Woodbridge, Virginia. My name is Taylor Mertens. I serve as the pastor of this church. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm delighted that you have decided to join us for worship today. I want to call to your attention a few things. The first is that there is an online bulletin for our worship service. The link for accessing it is in the video description. That online bulletin, the PDF, it has our, our scriptures, our prayers, our hymn, all the kind of good, important information. If that is at all helpful for you, I encourage you to open that up. There's also a link for uh, making an offering to the church, but we'll talk about that later in the service as well. We are in the midst of a long sermon series here at Cokesbury called the Jesus Prayer Book, uh, during which every week we've been looking at a psalm that shows up in the New Testament, in the Gospels, uh, to think about Jesus's favorite playlist, the Psalms, and how they were made manifest in his life, either by things he said or things that were said about him by other people. So we've been doing this every week, and as we've been doing it, I've been thinking about music and the kind of music we listen to and how that influences our life, just like the Psalms were part and parcel with Jesus's life. This week, I've been listening to a lot of music from uh, a guy who's almost exactly my age. His name's Kevin Morby. He's kind of like a singer-songwriter. Uh, he lives in the Midwest. Really, really incredible music. Uh, the lyrics just kind of haunt me and stay with me, and I think about them a lot. He has a, an album that just came out this year that I really, really love, and I was listening to an interview with Kevin Morby this week, and he just kind of nonchalantly said in this interview that every song on the album is in the key of E-flat. Now, for those of you who don't understand music or don't really know what that means, it, it, it's, it's a wild notion to consider that an entire album is all set in the same key. Uh, and immediately in my mind, I thought about preaching because we come to the Bible again and again and again, and we lift up the same scriptures over and over again. And at least for me personally, I get to proclaim something new using the same words over and over again. So, for instance, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 118, and one of the verses in there is that uh, the chief cornerstone has been rejected, and it has the cornerstone's been rejected, and that becomes the chief cornerstone. It's a theme that shows up in Scripture, and I preached about that same text just a few weeks ago, and yet today I have a whole different sermon based partially on those same words. 
That's kind of what it's like for Kevin Morby. He used the same key and was able to create an entire album with very different music, very different melodies, very different words, all from the same thing. I love music. I love how music can do that, and I love how scripture can do that in our lives. Of course, I'm also curious to know what's been showing up on your playlist, what kind of music you've been listening to recently. Drop some band names in the, in the chat, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube. Send me an email. I'm always on the lookout uh, for new good music. So send me what you're listening to. I'd love to check it out. Uh, with that, I encourage you now to perhaps find a comfortable posture as we continue to prepare our hearts and minds for worship. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful, wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. Lord, infuse our lives with the joy of your spirit, for we know only as we are known by you. So we pray that you would illumine our lives with knowledge of you that we may see that our endings are in fact beginnings. Wrench our closings open so that we will not fear suffering, and so learn that it is through our suffering, through our failures, that you make us your own. Compel us, make us free, so that we manifest the joy of friendship with you and with one another and the world. With that, O Lord, we will... Now each lift up to you our own joys and concerns this day, whether silently or aloud. And as you taught us, Lord, so now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I mentioned earlier in the service, every week we're looking at a psalm that shows up in the Gospels. Today we're looking at Psalm 118, verses 20 through 24. And then Mark eight twenty seven through 33. So hear now God's holy word. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, he said all of this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our hymn today is number 338 from the United Methodist Hymnal, Where He Leads Me. Uh, If you're not familiar with the words, you can find them in our online bulletin. But join me now over on the drums as I play and we sing together, Where He Leads Me, hymn number 338, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. Take thy cross and follow.
he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. They were walking along the road when suddenly the Lord stopped. Now the disciples, they look around as if a message is about to descend from the heavens, or at the very least, maybe some manna will come floating down. But instead, Jesus just stands there with a slightly furrowed brow. Hey, he says, let me ask you all a question. Who do people say that I am? Well, one of the disciples begins, I I heard someone in the crowd yesterday whisper about you being the best thing to come out of Nazareth since on-call carpentry. Yeah, another speaks up. And when we left your home synagogue that day, they kept calling you Mary and Joseph's baby boy. Yeah, another disciple says, I've got one for you, Jay. And you're going to love this because he's actually your cousin. People are calling you John the Baptist. I can top that, another disciple says. I was talking with one of the Pharisees last week, and he kept referring to you as the prophet Elijah. Fine, Jesus replies. That's all good and fine. But who do you say that I am? There's silence. Until Peter, ever eager Peter, nonchalantly replies, well, Jay, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, and that, Peter, is why you are the rock. He high-fives the first called disciple, and they continue on their merry way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. However, right before walking into a large gathered crowd, Jesus pulls his followers in close, like in a huddle. He says, hey, Remember all that stuff about me being the Messiah? Don't tell anybody, okay? Because all these people, they already have all their notions about what the Messiah is supposed to say and supposed to do. And if you go around telling them the truth, they're going to try to fit me into their boxes, which simply won't do in the kingdom. So don't tell anyone, okay? We good? We're on the same page? We're on the same page? Okay, great. So Jesus walks smack dab into the middle of all these people, and he begins teaching them the gospel. The Son of Man, that's me, must undergo great suffering. I will be rejected by the people in power, the elders, the chief priests, even the scribes won't go along with what I have to say. And then they're going to kill me. They're going to hang me up on a cross for everyone to see. But guess what? Three days later, I'll be back. And Peter who shortly before had been the only disciple to get the right answer, he grabs his Lord by the arm, yanks him away from the crowds, and starts whispering into his ear, What do you think you're doing? You can't die. You're the Messiah. You have to be respectable. You're the Christ. You're the one who's going to set everything right. You're the one who's going to put us back in charge, make Jerusalem great again, and all that. You can't be the Messiah. You can't be rejected if you're the Messiah. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Jesus pulls his arm back from Peter. He looks back over to the crowd, and he screams for everyone to hear, Get behind me, Satan! You've got your mind stuck on earthly matters, but I've come to overcome the world. Peter gets it right. He also gets it wrong. 
Now, along the road, he provides a straight answer about Jesus' identity, a welcome reprieve from all the hop-stepping we usually do when we're asked a question. But then later, when the Christ, the Messiah, the one whom he has just confessed, starts making all these ominous references to suffering and shame and even crucifixion, Peter gets it wrong. He gets it dead wrong. In the blink of an eye, he goes from Peter the Rock to Peter the Blockhead. From the very first called disciple to being compared to Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Peter. I love his eagerness. I love his faithfulness. But the thing I love most about him is how much of a failure he is. Now, Peter, in our passage from the strange new world of the Bible today, he joins a long line of faithful biblical failures. Noah, the only good soul the Lord could find, he delivers the survivors of the flood to dry land only to plant some grapevines and proceeds to get good and drunk, and he messes it all up. Judah, son of Jacob, he accidentally sleeps with his own daughter-in-law who pulled one over on him by dressing up as a harlot, and when Judah finds out that she got knocked up while being a lady of the night, he orders her to be murdered, burned at the stake, and he only relents when he discovers, spoiler alert, that he himself fathered the child in her. And David, David rapes a woman and then has her husband murdered to cover up his transgression. So when you take in the great swath of characters from Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments, they're mostly a bunch of losers, a bunch of failures who keep messing up over and over again, which is wonderfully good news. Their failures of faith are, in fact, good news because they help rid us today of all this this suffocating notions that we have to be perfectly and squeakily clean in order to follow Jesus. All the faithful failures of Scripture, they remind us over and over again that it's only when we let go of the facade of our never-ending niceness, only when we let go of our righteous certainty, only when we let go of our perennial self-improvement projects that the splendor of grace can hit us upside the head. Or to put it another way, it's hard, it's very difficult to receive Christ's mercy if we don't think we need it. The life of faith is one in which we come to grips with the condition of our condition, only then to be bombarded by the good news, the great news, that God in Christ has transformed all things for a bunch of people undeserving, for a bunch of failures. So do you see, Peter here, in his failure, he helps us to see that our failures, whether big or small, intentional or unintentional, none of them can ever exclude us from the mercy of God. I mean, think about it. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Can you imagine anything worse? Peter, called by the Lord while fishing, the witness to miracles and healings and feedings and teachings. Peter, the confessor of the truth of Jesus' identity. Peter, the rock upon which Jesus says he will build his church. He's called Satan. He gets it all wrong. And that's not even the end of his wrongness. On their final evening together, Jesus tells Peter that before morning, Peter will deny ever knowing him. To which, of course, Peter scoffs, No, heaven forbid, Lord, I would never do something like that to you. And of course, he does. Which is made all the more worse by the fact that this first disciple, he joins all the rest in abandoning Jesus to die on the cross completely and utterly alone. Jesus, 
quite literally, does everything he says he will do, the very things Peter can't get on board with. And then three days later, he rises to find the first disciple sitting by the seashore. He shares some bread and broiled fish with him, and he says, Pete, I've got a job for you. In the church, we call this grace. It's the unmerited, undeserved gift of God in Christ Jesus, and it is wild stuff. Made all the more wild considering how often we failures squander this incredible gift. Because we, like Peter, we build up these ideas for ourselves about who Jesus is and what Jesus stands for. And all those ideas, more often than not, they crumble under our feet. And we convince ourselves that Jesus is on our side, which of course means Jesus is against the same people we are against. When in fact, Jesus has not come to bring us more of the same, whatever it may be. Jesus has overcome the world and all of its machinations. So, for instance, let's say we believe, as Peter did, that Jesus has come to overthrow the current reigning political proclivities. Sure, fine, we can believe that all we want. But what happens when the people in power stay in power? Does that mean Jesus failed? Or what if we want things to stay the same and they change? Does that mean Jesus failed? Jesus is not an instrument of either side of partisan politics. Jesus is God. He is the Lamb of God. He is neither donkey nor elephant. He is the Lamb. And the Lamb has come to dwell among us, to rectify all of our wrongs, to save all of us from ourselves, and to turn the cosmos completely upside down. I mean, put simply, our notions of Jesus, more often than not, are too limited. And that's because we're like Peter. We're myopic in our vision of what Jesus has come to do. You know, perhaps we've, we've caught a glimpse behind the curtain of the cosmos. Maybe we've experienced something we can't explain. Maybe we've had a taste of the holy food, and yet we still want Jesus to fit into whatever box we've construed in our minds. But Peter, Peter came to know the truth of Jesus in a way that all of us do well to remember whenever we can. It's that Jesus was rejected. And Jesus, he was rejected not only by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Jesus was rejected by his own disciples. Jesus was rejected by Peter. The elect Son of Man and Son of God, born for us, born among us, is ultimately rejected by us. Jesus, he's regaled by the crowds with the cries of, Hey, Zana, Hosanna, Zana, Zana, hey. When, when he enters into Jerusalem, but by the end of the week, those same crowds, they're lifting up clenched fists into the sky, and instead of shouting Hosanna, which means save us, they're shouting crucify. The Lord, the Lord comes to deliver the last, least, lost, little, and dead, only in the end to hang on the cross and become the very things he came to deliver us from. He becomes the last and the least and the lost and the little and dead. But he doesn't stay that way. And that's why the good news is so good. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Taken the whole cleanup of the cosmos squarely and entirely into his own hands. Hands with holes in them. He doesn't hang on the cross until we confess our sins. He doesn't wait down in the grave until we get our lives together. He does what he does without us having to do anything. 
which makes the good news the most radical thing in history. Jesus does what he does for Peter, knowing exactly that Peter would fail. Jesus does what he does for us, knowing precisely that we will fail. At the end of all things, the only thing we can really do is rest and trust in the knowledge that Jesus has come to do something for us that we couldn't and wouldn't do on our own. Couldn't do it because none of us can atone for our sins, let alone the sins of the world, and wouldn't do it because Jesus insists on widening the scope of the kingdom and letting in all the riffraff that includes us that we would otherwise ignore. I remember when the casket was set up by the altar and the family was in the narthex waiting for the funeral to begin. While I was outside pacing back and forth in the parking lot feeling sorry for the family and the church because no one else had showed up for the funeral. There's just something terribly sad about a sparsely attended service for the dead. But frankly, I couldn't really blame people for not showing up for this funeral because the man now dead, the man whose body was shut up in the coffin in the sanctuary, was one of the meanest and most awful and terrible people I'd ever known in my life. He belittled people. He was terribly racist. He spoke his mind without caring at all about how much it could hurt somebody else. He would shout at people during church meetings. He would stick his finger into people's faces during fellowship meals. And he would loudly complain about everything, even when people weren't around to listen. But two minutes before the funeral was scheduled to begin, while I was making my way from the parking lot to the narthex, cars started streaming in. One by one, I watched people from the church step out of their cars and start walking across the parking lot. And with each passing one, I replayed moments in my mind of how horrible the dead man had been to every person who was walking in. The last person to step across the threshold of the sanctuary was an older woman with whom the dead man had been particularly terrible. So I motioned for her to come close, and I whispered in her ear, What are you doing here? I thought you hated him. To which she replied, Well, preacher, didn't you say last Sunday that even the worst stinker in the world is someone for whom Christ died? I think we better act like it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, for this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us, then both inwardly and outwardly, in the light of your grace and peace, so that we might walk in the ways of truth. That we are failures, but that's good news because... You work with failures. You make something of nothing. All God's people say, Amen. God has gathered us together in these strange ways, in these strange times. God has proclaimed God's word, and now we respond to what God has said with the giving of ourselves, our time, our efforts, our prayers, but also with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. I encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts to the ministries of Cokesbury United Methodist Church to give to God through Cokesbury. 
You can give online. The link for doing so is in the video description. You can give by sending a check through the mail to the church. Or if you live locally, we have a drop slot by our main office doors, and you can bring your offering by. Uh, give. Give with glad and generous hearts that Cokesbury might continue to proclaim this good news in a world that is drowning in bad news. Another way that we like to respond to what God has said and what God has done is by affirming our faith using the Apostles' Creed. So let's now affirm our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Now go forth with this blessing and benediction. May the God of grace and glory, God of the beginning and the end, the God of life, the God of death, the God of resurrection, help you to see that no one, no one is outside the bounds of Christ's mercy. And that's good news. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I look forward to gathering with you again next week, same time, same place, to listen more to Jesus' favorite playlist through the Jesus prayer book, through the Psalms, so that we can jam and hear more about who we are and whose we are. Go in peace. Be well. Amen. 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 No.